I am really, really glad to be here with you this morning, and and I'm excited about our I'm excited about our topic today because it's it's a uh, it's a it's a passage I've never preached on before, so I'm I'm kind of excited about that. So let me know how I do. I uh, I was I actually had a a uh, real encounter with what I was going to talk about at the beginning though. Yesterday, um, I took the kids uh, to Salt Spring um, for kind of a day trip. Um, that was that was kind of like our you know when you're homeschool you take spring break like whenever you want and and you take it whenever you can um, and so for us it was a day long and it was on Saturday but uh, we went out and had a great time but we're we're standing and kind of waiting outside our car um, waiting to load onto the ferry and I, I just I catch a small whiff of it um, that 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 smell that often happens down at the docks and I'm not talking low tide diesel fuel, which hopefully is not spilling into the, um, not spilling into the, the, the area around the water or anything like that. But I, you know, I catch a whiff of kind of like, you know, it's like, maybe it's like on a truck or maybe it's, you know, like diesel fuel from the, the ferry. I don't really know, but I catch a whiff of it. And immediately I am four years old, five years old. And it's Saturday. And what do I do on Saturday? I go to work with my dad. Because sometimes my dad worked on Saturday, and he was in the transportation industry for just years and years and years and years um, in the trucking industry. And uh, and so I would go down, and I'd, I'd do Saturdays with Dad. We'd take off early, and we'd go get, like, really unhealthy donuts or something like that on the way. And then we'd go to work, and Dad would do a couple hours of work, and I would, like, mess around with his calculator. Like, it was, it was the old calculator, like, with the tape roll. Man, I would just, like, oh, I was like an accountant in the making. Um, just, you know. Rolls and rolls of tape were wasted on me on a Saturday. Um, and then the highlight, though, is Dad would get his work done, and we'd go down to the bays. And there was always, like, two or three big semis that were, that were you know, I, they, were, they, were on, they were in the bays, and they were working on something in them, right? And, man, I could just climb all over those things, and I could climb into them, and I could do whatever I wanted to, you know. And we'd just, we'd just mess around with these trucks, and we did it. And it was, it was at least, like, once a month, once every couple of months, I'd go into work with Dad. And that smell of the garages, that smell of, like, the entire yard area, you know, that diesel fuel smell, right? Like, that's when I, I, mean, that's when I smell that smell. That's where I go. As I go back to like Saturdays with my dad, and it's a great, and and not everybody has that same reaction to the smell of diesel fuel, you know, all right, <laughs> you know, for Yusishin, it's like, dang, it's Monday again, you know, I mean, you know, like, that's, that's his reaction to it, right, I don't know, uh, but not everybody has that, but for me, that smell brings a very, very specific memory to mind, and, and they say that smell may be our sense that is most tied to memory. That's, that's what the scientists say. Okay, so I'll quote that. But it's actually that they think that when we smell something, it actually does more than just recall that memory. Um, it actually pulls the incident from the past and puts it back in our present. That somehow, that somehow smell and memory are so tied. It's not that we just recall something that happened. It's that for a moment, like, we're there again. Like I said, when I, it's what I said to you. When I smelled that, I was four again. It wasn't that I went, oh, yeah, I remember that when I was four. It was, like, vividly, like, in the bay with dad 
looking at the trucks, smelling the diesel fuel. I was there again. And we tend to be visual people, obviously. I mean, like our culture is very visual. But I need us to realize that, and I think we take for granted that not every cultural group is that way. Um, in, in fact, for the people of Jesus' time, visual representation was not the most powerful of senses, and it was not the most powerful way to express things. Actually, um, the most powerful sensory experience for the people of Jesus' age was oral. It was it was speaking and hearing. That was the most impactful. That's why names are such a big deal in the Bible because of the meaning that they carry. And when you speak a name over somebody, it is identifying and it is powerful and it brings great meaning, good or bad, um, to that. That's why when, when the Bible is composed, it's composed not as a written document for us to read visually and pick apart. It is composed as an oral document. Something to be spoken, something to be heard. And as things fall on you in your reading and as you hear it, it brings images to life in your mind and it sparks the imagination. The Bible is actually a very imaginative book. And because it's shot through with imagination doesn't mean it's not true. We tend to think of imagination as like, oh, you know, like you just pulled that out of nowhere and it's in your imagination. No, imagination is the ability to be there in your mind to actually understand to comprehend to create a picture of it in your mind and the fact that the bible is shot through with imagination is because it is trying to help us not just see with our eyes but to see with our soul to see with our heart to see truth in that way and so because it's because of the oral nature of the bible it calls on many many senses and in our particular reading today the sense that it calls on is the sense of smell and the sense of memory that's tied to smell. See, I could describe a flower to you, and you can, you can, you can. If I if I describe a daisy to you, okay, in 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 in, in words, it's going to be so much better than if I show you a picture of a daisy. If I just show you one, you go. If I show you a picture of a daisy, you go, yeah, it's a daisy. If I start to describe how the petals are white and how the center is yellow and how it's on a slender green stalk sitting in the middle of a field, a whole field of daisies in the middle of the grass on a sunny day. Now all of a sudden you're doing something completely different, aren't you? Because you've been near one. You've been in a field of daisies maybe. You even maybe remember a time when you were a part of that. Or, or there's a specific memory, and now all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I remember the last time that I smelled a daisy, or, or whatever. You're much more likely to go there if I speak to you about it than if I just show you a picture. And that's what the Bible is doing. The Bible is not showing us a picture. The Bible is telling us a story so that we can be connected to that story. I think anybody that was hearing the account of the woman anointing Jesus at Bethany would have a specific memory trigger when Mark begins to describe this perfume that's being used and how it breaks open over Jesus' head and anoints him, okay? This scent of the perfume filling the entire room. It was a life-altering event, and even though the disciples don't realize it at the time, it changes everything. And I think afterward, I bet they never caught a whiff of this particular fragrance again 
without being transported back to that night at Simon's house when Jesus was anointed for his burial a week before his death. If you haven't noticed over the past few weeks, we haven't just been talking with you about the significance of people encountering Jesus. We've also been subtly or not so subtly, maybe, teaching you about how to read your Bible. Um, and, and, and how to hear your Bible speak again. A lot of times we chop the Bible up into little small sections. And we're encouraged to do that because we have things that are chapters and verses that, that are great for reference. But really, really not good about keeping the voice of the Bible. And, and we miss connections that we would gain otherwise. Imagine the idea of each of these Gospels, like I said, being written to people who mostly don't know how to read. They would have to hear it and make those connections from the sound, from the oral, from listening to it read. And they would hear it all in one setting and make all of those connections themselves. And so there's, there's a big difference between me reading chapter and verse and hearing a story and hearing the entire narrative of Mark, right? And not only does that make my sermon seem shorter by comparison to listening to the entire Gospel of Mark in one setting, maybe, but it also helps us consider a different kind of experience with the Bible. What, what would it be like watching an artist paint a picture from start to finish rather than just looking at it when it's done? Okay, that's some of the beauty of the Gospel that we can miss sometimes. We've talked about a few techniques of the gospel writers from John's use of words that have double meanings to Mark's tendency to group things into three and Luke's emphasis on telling us something and then showing it right after. And this story shows us another technique of Mark, an artistry technique. Not only does he like to repeat things in threes, um, like I said, there, there are three seed parables in Mark. There are three popular opinions about John and three popular opinions about Jesus. There are three passion narratives. There are three times where he predicts his death. Um, there's three denials by Peter. I mean, there's three failures of the disciple to stay awake. He really likes the number three. Okay. But he also groups things in threes that may seem unrelated. And that's what's going on in our story today. Okay. So today, there is this example of our reading of this beautiful story in verses 3 through 9 is actually bracketed by two really ugly scenes. Right before it in verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and the scribes are looking for a covert way to take Jesus down. Okay, It has gone beyond being frustrated with Jesus, even though there's already foreshadowing because in, 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 in Mark chapter 3, they're already looking for a way to kill him. Okay, outside of Jerusalem. But now he's in Jerusalem, and now it's serious. He's in Bethany, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and they are actively looking for a way to shut him down permanently. And then right after this story, in verses 10 through 11, they find their solution in the disillusioned disciple of Judas. And Mark contrasts the beauty of our story by playing it against the ugliness and the darkness of the setting around it. The simple actions of this unnamed woman are shining against the shadows that are encircling Jesus as he gets closer to the cross. Now this account of the anointing happens in all four of our Gospels. But the reason that I chose Mark is that it brings a particular message with it. The woman has no name. In John, she has a name. Okay? And she has no sinful history attached and her accusers are also unnamed. 
Mark's not interested in the people. Okay? He doesn't want to bog us down with the unnecessary details about names and things like that. He wants us to focus on the act. He wants us to focus not on the woman. He wants us to focus on what the woman is doing and why it's important. Okay? For him, it's not even who does it. It's not even who opposes it. Why? Because that way we as readers have to ask ourselves, who am I in this story? Okay? Am I, am I like this woman? Am I like one of the other people in the story? We're going to get back to that in a second. Oh, by the way, the other characters in that story, that would include the chief priests and Judas too, because Mark's got them all squished together in the same narrative. So it's not just, are you, are you the woman or are you one of the naysayers? It's also, we have to consider the chief priests and we have to consider Judas in this story too. But we'll come back to that. So as the conspiracy grows, we get taken over to Simon the leper's house, Okay. In the town of Bethany. Now, Bethany is like the Jerusalem suburbs, okay? Um, you, you, you head out of Jerusalem, you go through Gethsemane, you go across the Kidron, and you go into, Va- into Bethany where Jesus is actually staying, and even where he stays when he's in Jerusalem, okay? Um, and so we immediately notice that Simon is called a leper. And that should kind of bring us up short, because if Simon's a leper, he can't own a house in Bethany, or he can't actually be at the house. He may still t- His family may still technically own it, but he wouldn't be able to be at the house in Bethany. He would have to be outside of town. So the fact that he's hosting the party and it's at his house is interesting. Simon obviously doesn't have leprosy anymore. But he's still called Simon the leper. Stereotypes are hard to, uh, to shrug off. Even when healing happens. I mean, it would, it would be nice to think, and I've seen some people speculate, that, that Simon is actually one of the lepers that's referred to earlier in the gospel that gets healed by Jesus, and now he's being thankful and he's like hosting Jesus for this, for this dinner. It's really nice. I don't have any evidence for that. It would be nice to think so. But the, but the focus is that once again, Jesus is frustrating people on who is inside and who is outside when it comes to the kingdom. Because if you're a rabbi of import and you come in for a festival like the Passover, you're looking to stay with the most prominent people. Or at least that's what the disciples would think. And that would be what the chief priests would think. And that'd be what everybody else would think. You'd be looking to stay at a house. You'd be looking for the best invitation. The one that makes you look the best. The one that's the most prominent, the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most whatever. You don't go to the house of the guy who everybody still remembers as the leper, the untouchable, the one who used to live outside the city and has recently come back and everybody's wondering whether he's really healed or whether, you know, like his sin is going to come back and bite him. Because remember, physical ailment and sinful condition are considered to be like one and the same. And so Simon's still suspect. There's a reason he's still called the leper. He's still considered kind of suspect by the community. And again... Jesus chooses the outcast, just like last week, just like he chooses Zacchaeus rather than all the prominent people that he could go. He is elevating, once again, he's elevating people that are low. And it's got to be frustrating if you're a disciple and you don't understand the kingdom, which the disciples don't. They don't get what's going on, and it's got to be so frustrating to be like, Jesus, why aren't you being more like the Messiah that we want you to be? Why can't you do that for us, please? Be what, be what we want you to be for a little while, please. Let's let you 
chew on that for a second. Jesus continues to shock us by his willingness to associate with those that are considered outcasts. And he's gonna and he's gonna do it again. Okay, he's gonna he's gonna elevate again, but in a different way. Mark takes little time describing the people in the scene, but he describes the perfume in great detail. Okay? The jar that it's made of, alabaster. It's rare, it's fragile, it's hard to shape and create as a medium, but it's extremely beautiful. But even the outside of the container pales in comparison to the inside. And you can already see the references. You can you can think of you can think of Paul saying, you know, well we have this amazing treasure in these in these clay jars, right? And he kind of downplays the jars, but you know what? Even in this, like the jar is beautiful. But what's on the outside of it pales in comparison to what's in the inside. This perfume is nard, and it is it is distilled and it is blended into an oil from this spiky-looking plant that was indigenous to India. Okay, so this is not it's not from anywhere around where Jesus is. In order to even get some, you have to import it from somewhere else. Okay. And, and you know how hard it is to import something in here these days, all right? So let's think about, in Jesus' day, how hard it is to import something, okay? My book from Amazon can stay tied up for two weeks. Like, who knows how long it takes to get this here. It's expensive. And the audience is invited into this extremely strong and unique smell. And they know what it is, okay? Even though it's rare, you know what it is. There's no mistaking it. Because... It's used for two things. And because they know the smell of it, they come into something that we miss immediately. The smell memory is that the conspiracy against Jesus is coming to a head right now. They know it even before they read that Judas goes and, and, and starts talking to the chief priests. You want to know how they know it? Because this, this particular perfume is so valuable, it's only used for two things. Okay. One, really, really rich people would use it as, as a perfume for their body, okay? And, and, and when I say like a perfume, it's talking like it's so pungent and all that you use just a couple drops, okay? Boop, boop, a couple drops, anoint the head, anoint the face, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, you're good to go, okay? But you use it for something else. You use it to cover over the stench of death. After a body has died. You use it to anoint the dead. You use it to anoint them for the preparation for their, in essence, for their burial. For, for the mourning and for the, the, the celebration of their life before you entomb them. That's the other thing you use this for. And so immediately, as soon as Mark describes it, everybody goes... So all this stuff that he's been saying about, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, here it comes. Here it comes. And see, that's, that's the interesting thing, is that, that Jesus' Jesus' story in Mark is a tragedy, okay? Not, 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 like, not like we think of it. I mean, like we think of, I think like the literary device of tragedy. As soon as, as soon as Peter says, you're the Messiah... You, sh- you could split the book into two parts. Because the first part of the book is everybody wondering who is Jesus. And then as soon 
as soon as, as, as Peter gives this little half-hearted, you're the Messiah, but he doesn't even understand what it means yet. As soon as that happens, everything is about this inevitable march to the cross. There is no getting out of it. Jesus knows it. He says it. Other people know it. They recognize it. The disciples, they have no idea of the significance of what's going on, but they can't stop it. The cross is coming. It's inevitable. And this just shows that it's inevitable, even more inevitable. And there's no getting out of it because Jesus is already being anointed for his burial before he's even dead. Okay? And so it's really, really good foreshadowing. Everybody realizes this beautiful, extravagant act is being surrounded very, very explicitly by death. But it's also a study in extravagance. It's really, really hard for us to translate the value of this offering. I don't even know if we can, okay? But this offering, it, it would be like, can you take the gross income of your entire family for one year and put it in your hands in a bottle? Okay? That's the best way I would know how to describe it. I would be really careful with that bottle. Um, right? It was most definitely an inheritance. It was possibly even this woman's dowry for her marriage. Like, it was something that she was going to use as, like, the, the, the inheritance that passes over to the family when you get married. Okay? A few drops would have been valuable. A handful would have been incredible. But she takes the entire jar and breaks it over Jesus' head. It is love and it is devotion on a purely other level. And like any extravagant devotion, there are automatically naysayers. It doesn't take two seconds after she breaks the jar open before people are going, What are you doing? Do you have any idea how expensive this is? Do you have any idea how wasteful that is? Do you have any idea what we could have done with this? And they even say a really good thing that could have been done with it, okay? John, of course, says it's for a different reason. You know, it's Judas saying it because he's really a thief. And, he, you know, it's like, oh, I could have gotten my hands on that. Okay. But Mark is just saying, look, there are lots of really good things that this could have been, that this could have been used for. But this is the best thing. Right? And Jesus immediately comes to her defense. And, it, and his rebuke is so affirming and so enlightening. He calls her act beautiful, but that word carries both a sense of it being the morally right thing to do, which I think is very, very interesting in context with we could have sold this and given the money to the poor, which is a really, really righteous, morally right act. And Jesus goes, no, 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 this is beautiful, i.e. the morally right thing to do in this circumstance. Okay? But also, it's an extravagantly pleasing thing. And it's because she understands the situation. Jesus is about to die, and so she holds nothing back for him. That's why he says, you know, the poor you're always going to have with you. There will always be times to do the morally right thing, but then there are times to do the extravagant thing. And she understands what's going on. And she seizes it, which I think is amazing because Jesus is surrounded by disciples who have heard that he's going to die in Jerusalem when he goes there. Numerous times. And then they're ones going like, why on earth is she anointing you? And Jesus is like, have you not figured it out yet? 
But this woman comes from the outside and she understands what's going on and she understands the gravity of Jesus' death. And so she responds with extravagance. She gives all that she has. She invests all of herself in it because he's about to give all that he has and invest all of himself for her. And her story becomes immortalized in Scripture because all three of these stories are designed to make us wrestle with this one question. How will we respond to the death of Jesus? Like I said, Mark wants to have us wrestle with which character we are in this story, including the priests and including Judas. How do we react to Jesus' sacrificial death? Some, like the priest, are going to respond by planning and participating, outright rejecting Jesus and his message. But even that categorical denial can be discreet. It's entirely possible for us to publicly affirm Jesus and yet not be on the same page with him at all. It happens to church folk then. It can happen to church folk now. We're not an exception. But the one that may be closer to the target is Judas, because he doesn't come from the same place as the priests. But his actions become even more troubling, because he claims friendship with Jesus. He claims intimacy as a disciple. And yet ultimately, he misunderstands the person and the message of Jesus, and he betrays it, because he won't devote himself to it. And I think that hits the mark much closer. I think the chances are more likely than not that we hold that role sometimes. That we claim fellowship with Christ, but we choose to divide our priorities and attentions between the church and the world. We ultimately betray the person and the mission of Jesus with our lack of integrity and the way that we waste our relationship with him. I think that's, I think that's much more likely that we could identify with him. Mark's message is one of extravagant sacrifice. And I fear it's one that not many of us are willing to make with our time and our attentions and our service and our priorities. Even when we're here. Even when we're here, how many of us, we come just to receive a good word or uploading worship or a social connection with our friends or religious education for our kids or whatever, fill in the blank. How many of us come with the mindset of extravagant devotion right off the bat? I'll be real. There, there are some Sundays where your preacher comes and he does not have that in mind. And I have to ask my question. I have to ask that question. Who am I in this story? Am I someone coming, claiming fellowship and intimacy with Jesus, but not extravagant devotion? That should bring me up short because that's what Mark's trying to do. And it might be the naysayers, the disciples who don't understand sacrifice and devotion like they should. And, and, and they think that they're insiders, but they're not. They're actually on the outside of this story. And the woman is in the middle, and she's the one that gets immortalized in Scripture. And she's the one that understands what's going on. Once again, Jesus elevates her, right? You'd think that the disciples, the ones that have the status and have the relationship, those are the ones that should be elevated as the model of who we should be with Jesus. But instead, they're on the outside of this picture, and the inside is somebody that comes in from the outside and understands what devotion looks like. Understands how to connect, saying, I know who you are, Jesus, with, and this is how I will live, and this is how I will respond. 
not just with the morally right thing, but knowing what is the extravagant thing to do. I really believe that Mark condemns the attitude that all Jesus wants is our good Christian stewardship. Because this woman's response moves on a completely different ground. It's not born out of doing the right thing. You know, because I'm supposed to. Right? It is born out of deep affection. It is born out of deep gratitude. Personal love and devotion that defies common sense, that breaks patterns, that lavishly gives all. Because Jesus' way is the way of extravagant self-sacrifice, and he's getting ready to prove that at the cross. And the way of the true disciple is in the same steps. Extravagant self-sacrifice. The lions, as they stand a mark, are not so fine between claiming disciple and being disciple. That's the message of the cross that's mirrored in this passage. And I, and I wonder sometimes how ready I am to hear that. I wonder sometimes how ready we are to hear that. That, that true beauty is the whole of my life. Nothing held back, broken and poured out for my Savior. It won't make sense. It won't. And the naysayers will come. They always do even with the best of intentions, when we live extravagantly for Christ, when we live sacrificially for Christ. They will come with the best of intentions, and they will say, what are you thinking? And I think Paul most definitely had this scene in mind when he told the Corinthian disciples, we are the aroma of Christ to the Father among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one... just the stench of death. But to the other, ah, to the other, we smell like real life itself. How do you feel when confronted with this kind of devotion? If we balk and we make excuses, if we wrinkle our nose at the task, then we need to realize we may not be the disciples that we think we are. And that's a good message to receive today from not to beat you down. It's to, it's to bring you up short so that you can dive further into what it means to love your Savior. But the devotion is the mark of the follower of Jesus. And that is the extravagant offering that pulls the sacrifice of Jesus out of the past and into our now. Right? To one, it's the smell of death. It's the smell of craziness on a cross. But to those who are being saved, it takes this act from 2,000 years ago and it pulls it back into my life today. And it makes it real again. And it puts me there and it puts him here with me. And it makes me ask the question again, how will I respond to the death of Jesus? The next two weeks, is it? I mean, we're moving toward Easter. We're moving toward this inevitable death. We're moving toward this inevitable cross again. Jesus says, if you are my disciple, then you will pick that cross up and you will follow me. And see, taking that out of the past and putting it into now makes it more than a tragedy. 
makes it more than a memorial to a dead Messiah. It makes it a triumphant celebration of a Savior who overpowers all else in my life, even death. He has given costly, costly love. And he deserves a love of the highest cost from us. And so the only question that we have now is, what does extravagant devotion look like for you? 